Welcome to Birth of a Mama, a podcast for sharing stories about the experience of motherhood from birth, the moments immediately after and beyond. I'm your host, Natalie Welch, registered dietitian and mom of one energetic baby girl. Through sharing our stories and hearing the experiences of others, we can all feel heard and heal. Postpartum is forever. Postpartum is hard. And this podcast brings you the raw, honest truth. Today, I had the chance to talk to Megan Brubaker about her very unique birth and postpartum stories. She's a military wife and mom of three who struggled with pretty severe postpartum depression. Her story is very intense and scary at times. So if premature birth or major maternal complications are at all triggering to you, go ahead and skip this episode. Otherwise, please listen and enjoy as this story shares some very important messaging and is truly incredible. Hi, Megan. Welcome to Birth of a Mama. Hi. So will you start off by just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and your family? Yeah, definitely. Um, My name is Megan. I am a mom of three kids. Audrey is my oldest. She's nine. Bradley's my middle child. He's six. And then my youngest is Colby, and he's 15 months old. Um, I've been married coming up on 10 years now to my husband, Kyle. He's in the Air Force. Um, I'm from Sacramento originally, but we currently live in Wyoming, and we're getting ready to move again this summer. So if you had to describe the transition into motherhood in three words, which would you choose? So I'm going to think back to when I first became a mom and tell you the three words that I felt back then because the words that I would tell you now are probably totally different. So um, the first word would definitely be scary. Um, I was only 21 when when I had my first child. I was the first one out of all my friends group to have a baby by many, many years. I didn't know anyone that had a baby. I'd never been around babies and I didn't know anything about raising a baby. So It was scary. It was very, very scary. The second one would be isolating. Um, Circle back to being the only one in my friends group to have a baby. It was just a very isolating feeling. All those postpartum hormones and everything, everybody else being in a totally different stage of their life than I was, I just felt alone. Looking back, I wasn't alone, but I just felt very alone. So, and then third would be rewarding. Um, As tough as everything felt at the time, it was still the most rewarding thing I had ever done. And that word is still the word that I would use today, nine years later. Two more words that I would add to now would be empowering and exhausting. I'm sorry for all the new moms dealing with like the newborn sleep deprivation. I'm nine years deep and I'm still exhausted. I'm so tired all the time. I don't know that that ever is going to go away. Uh, And then empowering because I don't feel like there is anything or anyone that can get in the way of me when it comes to the needs of my children. And that is something that I kind of came about in an ass backwards way, because as a new mom, I felt like a lot of people doubted me. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. Doctors kind of have a way of dismissing new parents. I 
trying to think of an example, um, brushing off parents' concerns, saying, oh, you're a first-time mom. It's This is normal. This is that. This is the other. And it's that kind of doubt or kind of brushing things to the side that lit a fire within me to stand up for my children and really empower me to be their best advocate. So empowering is definitely the word that I use to describe motherhood now. I love that. And that's so true in all aspects of healthcare. I feel like you really do have to advocate for yourself. And when you're the mother to an innocent, practically helpless little being, you know, we have to. Um, And I, I super resonate with the first two words you said, scary and isolating. I never thought that those would be two things I would have felt as becoming a mom. And I feel like those were two of the most powerful emotions that I felt um, and still feel sometimes, to be honest. And my daughter's a year old now. So a lot of people and this isn't to try and scare anybody like you always hear exciting, beautiful, all these words to describe motherhood, which those are all true, too. But there's a lot of other words that maybe people don't talk about that a lot of people feel too. It's a lot of, I don't want to say negative, but there are some not so great feelings too. Yeah. I think that that is one of the main pillars of this podcast and the reason why I started it because it's very romanticized. It's very storybook, fairy tale, the way that motherhood is perceived and, you know, having a family and having kids and, especially as a woman, I feel like growing up in our society, especially with social media where everyone just posts, you know, the best parts of their lives, the highlight reels. So that's all you really get to see. And, you know, in the movies, they portray birth as being, you know, pretty scary and intense. The woman's like usually screaming and it doesn't look like an enjoyable experience. But once the baby's there, it's like everything just changes. There's this shift in energy and everything's, you know, calm and happy and just perfect and yeah once you have the baby then it's magic and beautiful and then if you don't feel that wait what's wrong with me what did I do wrong and what what am I missing that everybody else has so then you have this idea of like oh I really messed something up and I'm doing something totally wrong when you're not you're not you're actually feeling that everything that probably everyone else is feeling just nobody told you about which sucks Yeah. Right. I wish that someone would have told me the honest truth and just been like, Hey, look, uh, it's going to be really fucking hard and it's going to suck a lot of the time, probably most of the time, just to be honest. Yeah. (laughs) And I, I might not have even believed them, but. And you feel bad for telling people like, Hey, it's going to suck, but I wish someone had told me. Yeah. I feel the same way. That's what drove me to be here with you today and to be putting out these stories. We focus so much on birth. You can go on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and just type in birth and you'll get just endless options of birth story podcasts and just anything to do with birth, really. We're very focused on the birth part, which is important, of course. But think about the birth compared to the child's life. Like, the you know, we're talking years upon years upon years compared to a day or, you know, however yeah. long your labor is, right? Birth is very so, small compared to everything else. Exactly, exactly. And we don't put any focus or energy and there's no education. There's no, I mean, I think it's getting better, um, a little bit better, you know, in, in recent times. But historically, there's been really nothing to prepare 
for the postpartum period or the, you know, after the baby is here. Um, people joke about that, right? Like, I feel like, I don't know if your parents ever said this, but my, my mom was like, yo, we took you home from the hospital and we were like, where's the manual? What do we do now? You know, (laughs) because yeah, yeah, there is no, like, there's no training on that. There's no education. So, um, so on that, did you prepare for postpartum with your first baby or really any of your babies? And if so, how? Definitely not with the first one. No, not at all. In fact, then there was no TikTok. Instagram was kind of a thing, but it was mostly just Facebook. So I had no idea. Not like, and when I say no idea, I don't even think that I knew that I was going to bleed after birth, honestly. So like I did not buy pads, literally not a single thing. I think I bought some like nursing bras afterwards, maybe one. Cause I do remember going to Target afterwards and buying some nursing camis, but no postpartum products afterwards. All that I had to care for myself afterwards is what I came home from the hospital with. And looking back, I mean, it's not like I was suffering greatly. Like, oh, you need to go to the store and buy me a bunch of stuff. I was, I was okay. I was okay. I wasn't great um, with the first one. The second one, I did prepare a little bit. I made some like padsicle things and I went into it like, I'm going to be so much better prepared this time. I had like the nursing camis and bras and pads and felt like, oh, I have got this. And then I ended up having a C-section. So that one was kind of funny. But for like the nursing supplies, having that and not having to go to the store while recovering from a C-section, that was nice. Um, And then with the third one, I had planned to have a V-back. I did not end up having a V-back, which is fine. I was prepared, but I wasn't prepared. I bought supplies. I had a bunch of stuff because he was my third child, but also completely unprepared because he was a whirlwind that you could not have prepared for. Yeah. And that's the other thing is you never know what you're going to be dealt. Preparing for your body healing is one thing with like the padsicles and the Depends underwear and the Perry bottles, but like you just never know what the actual day-to-day is going to be like with this new baby. Like what kind of baby are they going to be? How are they going to sleep? What's the feeding going to be like? You can prepare mentally and try to educate yourself on the options and, you know, be prepared and, and informed in that way, but you just never know. I will say what I did with the second and third burst that helped so much physically is I made freezer meals, which that helped a ton. And then the biggest thing that helped for the second and thirds is that I went into it with a flexible mindset, which I didn't with the first. I didn't know that I needed that. Um, I had a birth plan with my second, but I went into it with the mindset of like, it might not go the way that I want and I'll, I need to be okay with that. And then the third one, I, I didn't really even have a birth plan. I said, this is plan A, B, and C. And if none of those happen, that's okay. This is just how I would like it to go. And I'm okay if it doesn't. I just had an open mind and I had birth preferences. So that's how I prepared the best way I could. It's just being okay with however it ended up. I mean, that's... Honestly, I think the best thing that you can do and and hopefully carry that over into postpartum, that perspective, right? It's it's almost like you have to let go, just like you said with the birth, like you're okay with it going another way because you realize that birth is unpredictable and you know, you you're not in control. But for some reason, like even if we're able to grasp that with birth, I find that 
at least with me and with a lot of women I know, it's really hard to carry that over into postpartum. But I feel like it's so key to remain flexible, to not have expectations, like, you know, high expectations and to to let go of control in some senses, because a lot of that is what I think contributes to us being so miserable sometimes as moms. And I think part of that is because when you are bringing a baby into this world, you have medical providers that are physically there with you. So if it doesn't go the way you plan for it to go, they are there saying, well, it can't go this way. It needs to go this way. When you're home with a baby in your mind, you have an idea of how you want it to go. And if it doesn't go that way, you don't have anyone there telling you it needs to go this other way and it's okay. It's the lack of support for moms postpartum. You don't have anyone telling you it's okay and it needs to be the other way. Exactly. The support, that word right there is is massive. I mean, that's what is lacking ultimately. I think that's kind of what can underline all of this is is that lack of support. And I think that's kind of like what I get at when I ask people about preparing for postpartum. A lot of times, you know, we do talk about like the healing and, you know, the physical healing of our bodies and everything like that. But it's like, okay, but what about after that? Because postpartum is is longer. Like we heal up. Some women take only a couple weeks. Some women, it takes upwards of like four to eight weeks. It really just depends on the circumstances of your birth. But then what about after that? And even during that, the support is arguably even more important because you are physically healing. You are mentally and physically exhausted. You do feel like you've been literally hit by a train. People say that and think it's funny, but I actually felt like I had been hit by a car or something. Like my body was <laughs> literally wrecked. funny about feeling like you get hit by a train. Like Especially when you really feel that way, like it's awful. And then you also have to care for this little helpless thing 24 seven that doesn't sleep and eats constantly. So yeah, support would be extremely helpful and is a value for sure in the postpartum period. And there's all kinds of different support. There's the physical support of bringing meals over, helping with dishes. And I can't even begin to tell you how much help that was. And I had that the most with my most recent birth. One of my neighbors set up a meal train for us and we didn't have to think about, I had, my mom was here while I was still pregnant and we we had to have made like 30 freezer meals. So our deep freezer was set and that's all I thought about. But then my friend set up a meal train for us and all of our neighbors fed us for it had to have been for six weeks. And that's a really long time. To, we did not have to think about meals for six weeks. And they brought it all in disposable containers. And it was, wasn't was just like one dish. It was like the main dish and sides and dessert and like all the utensils. And that was the biggest weight off of our shoulders of like, we don't even have to think about that or cleaning the dishes after that. And it was amazing. That is that is amazing. So just for listeners who may may not know, do you can you explain what a meal train is? It's a website. I get I've never set one up, so I don't really know. It's a website, a free website, I assume. And someone just goes on and like you can use it for anything, like for any event. And they just set it up and say, Oh, so and so had a baby or is having surgery. Let's support them and they 
type in the details of like if they have any allergies, if they have any favorite meals, and people sign up for what day they want to bring food, and you can set it up to last for an entire year or a week or whatever. You can put like what time you would like meals brought over and just all kinds of information, and it's super, super helpful and really, really appreciated. If you don't know what to give someone or how to help after having a baby or a surgery, that is a huge one. Oh yeah, for sure. See, I knew what it was. I just, I always wondered how they were set up. So we'll have to link that in the show notes. If I had had that during my postpartum, oh my gosh, how much easier and like just the amount of pressure that would have been lifted, figuring out how to feed yourself, which is super important. Hello, dietitian speaking. Um, it's just so hard. It's so hard. Like even as a dietitian who, you know, I'm supposed to know how to do all these types of things, but when you're in the thick of postpartum, you know, it's just another thing that you have to, another, you know, Mm -hmm. chore you have to do. Well, and when someone says, how can I help? A lot of people don't understand this, but I think a lot of moms do understand this. That feels exhausting to have to answer that. How can I help? I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to answer that. I don't want to have to think of one more thing. Or sometimes you just feel guilty of like, can you cook me dinner? Because sometimes you just feel like, how can I not even manage to feed myself? At the time I had two other kids. How can I not manage to feed my two other kids and my husband and myself? I can't do that. And so when someone says like, what can I do to help you? And you're like, sometimes it's either easier to just say nothing. Yeah. Well, it's not our fault for feeling that way, really, if you think about it. We're we're made to think that we should be able to do it all. Even a day, two, three, four days after we just have given birth. Like, we're a mom. We're supposed to take care of everybody. Take care of ourselves. Oh, yeah, that's that's the last thing on the list. So who is to mother the mother? Like, who takes care of the mom so that she can take care of everyone else, which is what's expected of her, right? So it's really not fair. Like we're basically set up to fail. We're set up to be miserable and we're set up to be exhausted. We really need to change the dynamic and change the way that it's perceived and, and get people on board with just automatically supporting in ways that are useful and helpful and knowing like you know, cause it does, it hurts almost to ask, like, can you cook me dinner when you feel yeah. like, what am I like a child? Like, why do I need someone to cook me dinner? You know, like I'm the mom, I should have it all taken care of when in reality, like we actually shouldn't and we don't need to, and we should have help. Like we deserve to have help. It's not, it's not a one person job. It was never meant to be. Yeah. And over the course of time in human history, we've gotten away from having all these people come together and help the mom and make sure that she, her one job is to rest and feed her new baby. Yeah. And that was one of the hardest things as a mom and as a person in general to be able to admit, I can't do it all and I need to ask for help. And that's really hard for me to do. And so finally, one of our neighbors, it was like eight months postpartum. And I'm like, I should have my shit together by now, like eight months, but all of Colby's medical things and all this And she's just like, how are you? And I just started crying. I'm like, not good. And so she asked me, she's like, well, what can we do to help? And I said, "Um, sorry. It's okay. Honestly, a home cooked meal would be really nice because we've been so busy with the other kids' activities and doctor's appointments and going to the hospital. 
we've just been eating so much fast food. And a lot of times that's just out of convenience. Obviously the other kids, you know, they like it and it's a treat sometimes, but it had become not a treat. And I just wanted a home cooked meal and I couldn't give that to them. And so she said, you know what? I got you. And then she brought us three home cooked meals over the next week. And it was, it meant more than she will ever know. But that was really hard for me to be like, can you cook me dinner? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like such a simple thing, but it's so complex in terms of what it means, right? What it feels like to us. I think there's just so much guilt attached to it, you know, and there shouldn't be. We deserve a home cooked meal without having to go through the one to two hours and stress. And, you know, we, we literally like if you have multiple kids, you that's not even po- possible, especially as a new mom. I mean, yeah, it's just crazy. And I, I'm just so thankful that there's people out there like your friend, your neighbors that all came together for that meal train. Like, that needs to be the norm. And I wish that we could somehow disconnect the guilt from having to ask for that and that people who were in our friends group, family group, whatever, knew to just set those things up for us, you know? Because I have a lot of people who I've talked to and I'm like, oh, a meal train. And they're like, A, they're like, what is that? And B, they're like, well, I don't want to ask for people to bring me food, you know? Like I'm for those exact same reasons. I just wish that that wasn't, I wish it wasn't the case. I wish that it was more of the norm. And then what this, what my amazing neighbor did... And I don't know if she knows that I know she did this. It ended up being a ripple effect, which she just talked to the rest of our neighbors. And then our neighbors would just randomly be like, oh, I have some extra of this. Can I bring it over? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And they bring over a whole chicken pot pie. I'm like, you have a, an extra entire chicken pot pie? You just have an <laughs> extra one? Sure. But being taken care of like that, everybody should have that. Exactly. Well, let's dive into a brief overview of your birth. Yeah. So my first birth, I was induced. Um, I had gestational diabetes with all three of my children. I was super impatient. I was young. And I was like, I'm done being pregnant. I'm huge. And I don't know. I just don't want to be pregnant anymore. And so uh, because I had gestational diabetes, She was measuring big, and because I was impatient and whatever, they were like, okay, we'll induce you. I was 39 weeks and five days, so whatever. I go to the hospital super early. I was induced, and it was a very smooth, uncomplicated um, induction. It took the day just with Pitocin. They broke my water, um, and... A uncomplicated vaginal birth. Uh, I was really, really afraid of feeling pain. So I, I got an epidural and I just kept clicking the button because I'm like, I do not want to feel these contractions. I had heard all the horror stories about Pitocin contractions being horrible. So I kept pushing this button and I kept thinking that I was feeling contractions. So I pushed the button again and I had heard people saying like, oh, I had the epidural, but then it wore off right before it was time to push. So then I felt everything. I had heard all these horror stories and I was convinced that was going to happen to me. Like I didn't read any books. I didn't take any classes. I didn't, nothing. So I let all of these horror stories go to my head. Um, so I was so numb. I didn't feel anything. I couldn't move my legs. I couldn't pick my legs up nothing. So the nurse comes in and she says, okay, let's do some, I, I was obviously 10 centimeters dilated. Uh, nurse comes in and says, let's do some practice pushes for first time moms. Let's 
totally normal to push for an hour, two hours, you know, so let's do some practice pushes, make sure that you can do it properly. And so I do a practice push and she goes, okay, stop pushing. Cause my daughter was starting to come out. So I stopped pushing and she keeps saying, stop pushing, stop pushing. And I was not pushing anymore. And I didn't know it, but my husband told me that the nurse was holding my daughter's head inside of me cause she was coming out, but the doctor wasn't there. So finally, um, the doctor comes in really quickly and I push once and she comes out and she was born. It was a very quick, I guess you could say magical. I know it was quick. It was a very, very quick birth. She was put on my chest immediately um, and it was amazing. I mean, it, it, it was like the movies and like they say, it truly was love at first sight. And that first cry was amazing. You see your child for the first time and you cannot put it into words. That sounds like such a seamless, I mean, it was just an overview, so I don't know the details, but like, I love that she just came right out. The nurse is thinking she's going to have to help you push and you're like, I'm not even (laughs) doing anything. It really was. It was. And I mean, sometimes I feel guilty for like saying how nothing went wrong and it was not scary. I was very, very lucky with that birth. (laughs) And that's how I thought they were all going to go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess I'll find out if I have more, if that's the, you know, they're all just, every kid is different and every birth experience is different. Like, Mm -hmm. well, and I just thought like, that's how my body delivered babies. That's, that's how I I thought it worked. Like, oh, that's how your first one goes. The rest will go with it. That's not how it happened. (laughs) (laughs) So how were those moments right after birth? She was put right on your chest. Mm -hmm. How was that like immediate postpartum experience for you? Yeah, it was, that really was magical. Everything felt like bright and really cheesy sounding, but it really was. Um, She was immediately put on my chest and they cleaned her off, but then they took her, uh, my husband cut the umbilical cord and they did like her exams And then I got to hold her for an hour. And now I'm trying to think back. I don't think I tried to breastfeed her. I think I just held her and looked at her and it was just my husband and I. And we really just soaked it all in and looked at her and we're like, I can't believe we have a baby. Like, holy shit, now what do we do? (laughs) Yeah, I remember that feeling. (laughs) Yeah, like, oh. We've been waiting for this for nine months. Now what do we do? Um, I did tear pretty badly. So I remember the doctor took a while to stitch me back up, but I didn't care at all because I was holding my baby. I didn't care about anything. We had that hour, just us, and they were getting ready to move us to the postpartum floor or whatever. But before I could go, I had to, I I wasn't allowed to move to the room until I could pee. I do remember this very vividly because that was very, very painful. But my nurse was amazing. I think that the postpartum nurses are angels because what they have to deal with is a lot. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. So how did those first two weeks go with her? The first two weeks were pretty tough. Just the lack of sleep, the lack of knowledge of babies. When I tell you I didn't know anything about babies, I... (laughs) I remember in the postpartum room, I go to change her diaper and I look at my husband and I go, 
I've never changed a baby's diaper before. How do I do it? And that's not true. I had, I had babysat before, but I had changed like toddler diapers, not a teeny tiny little, like those are little, little babies. Um, and he just started laughing at me and I'm like, oh, I'm terrified here, dude. Maybe like help me. I don't know. Um, and I got really scared. Like what? did we just do? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. But then we got home and I was in so much pain from tearing and then the hormones and I tried to breastfeed. Breastfeeding itself wasn't painful, but it wasn't working. And I didn't know that it wasn't working. I just, it wasn't working, I don't know. And she just cried all the time but I didn't know babies, so I thought that was normal, and she didn't sleep, and it was just like, I don't know what I'm doing, and it was just so much doubt, and crying, and not sleeping, and then doctor's appointments, and pain, and then at two weeks, I was still taking my pain medicine around the clock, pretty much, and I called my doctor because I needed a refill on my pain medicine, and she said, no, I'm not refilling that. You shouldn't still need pain medicine, and I just started crying. I'm like, I'm still in so much pain, what do you mean? She was pretty rude about it. She's like, well, if you're still in that much pain, maybe you should come in and we should give you a checkup. I'm like, you think? Um, and so I went in and my stitches were infected and I had a pretty bad infection um, from where I had torn. And she's like, oh, that would explain why you're in so much pain. We'll refill your pain medication and we'll give you antibiotics. And I just was like, what if I hadn't called needing more pain medicine? I mean, everything made me cry. But then it got better um, after the antibiotics. The pain went away, obviously, when the infection went away. The physical pain got better, but the mental pain got worse over time. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. I tore two and it, I did not have an infection. And oh my God, it was, it was, the pain was awful. It really was like, yeah. I'm surprised they don't give us something stronger than Motrin and Tylenol, but. Well, I had, and I don't know if it's different because it was nine years ago. I had um, narcotics, Oh, which okay. I hear yeah. now that even after C-sections, doctors aren't giving narcotics, which blows my mind because after every birth, I've been given narcotics, but I've heard the doctors say, oh, if you're breastfeeding, you can't have narcotics. And I'm like, over my dead body, you are giving me narcotics because... C-section or not, I was just ripped open. You're giving me pain medicine. That's ridiculous. Um, yeah. So how, what about like up until three to six plus months postpartum? How did that time period go? Yeah. So after I got through like the initial physical healing, um, things got really bad um, mentally for me. My... Breastfeeding did not go how I thought it would go. Every app that I had just said, your body is gonna make exactly how much milk your baby needs. And breastfeeding is just gonna be this natural, magical thing, which like now looking back after having three kids and talking to literally any mom, I know that's bullshit. Um, <laughs> breastfeeding's hard. Sometimes it's magical, sometimes it's easy. I don't know many moms that say that, though. And it was really hard. Um, my daughter did have 
dairy allergy. She also had a tongue tie, tongue and lip tie, but I didn't know what any of that stuff was. So we were just trying to figure out why she cried all the time. Um, and we just didn't really have any help or resources navigating that. All I wanted to do was breastfeed because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. And so the fact that I couldn't was really hard on me mentally. I felt like a failure as a mom because I felt like if my body can't do the one thing, the one basic thing to keep my child alive, what kind of a mom am I? I have a history of depression as it is and that on top of the hormones and the in my head being a failure as a mom just contributed to really 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 severe postpartum depression. I also had a touch of postpartum anxiety but thinking back to that time um, I have a pretty limited memory of the first six months of my daughter's life because of how severe it was. And it's still really hard for me to talk about because I carry so much guilt about that time. And unfortunately, I do remember this memory and I wish I didn't. One of the hardest nights was my daughter had been crying all day. She must have been three months old at the time. And I just felt, I can't do anything right. She deserves so much better. And I told my husband that I think we need to put her up for adoption because I can't take care of her and she deserves a mom that can take care of her. And looking back, that stemmed from, I felt like I couldn't take care of her because I couldn't breastfeed her. And comical is not the word I would use, but if I had put her up for adoption, what would an adoptive family have fed her? They would have fed her formula. So like that shows you how, how much depression can lie to you. It was telling me that I was a horrible mom because I couldn't breastfeed my daughter and that she was better off going to another family that would feed her formula. But I couldn't feed her formula because I was her mom. Yeah. See, again, this is totally not your fault. This is everything we're fed about how, and I believed it too. I thought, and I had a very similar experience to yours. I couldn't, breastfeeding did not work for us. And I felt like the worst woman, mother on the face of the planet. It was torturous to me and I refused to give up and I kept holding out even though I was in extreme pain and I was suffering like my mental health was suffering and I was not engaged I was not present I was not enjoying anything any bit of motherhood yeah and it's weird because I've never had the thought that formula is bad or toxic or harmful or any in any way it's just something in my head makes me think that I need to breastfeed my child, not because it's healthier or anything, but it's just like, that's what I'm supposed to do as a mother. Unfortunately, that's super common. So you are not alone in that struggle that you went through at all. We might come from it from, you know, a different viewpoint, but the feeling of being in that and feeling like we're inadequate is is horrible and unfortunately like shared among many mothers, I think. And... I I tried everything to increase my supply, including a prescription medication that can increase your supply, but I didn't know that it can also increase 
suicidal thoughts and depression. So that made me go even further into a depression after that. So I was in a very, very dark and dangerous place. And unfortunately, I didn't know anything about postpartum depression. I had heard about it. I didn't I didn't even know that's what I had. Um, my husband didn't know about it. He didn't know that's what I had. He knew there was something wrong with me. He knew there was something very seriously wrong. I don't think he knew how bad it was, but that night he knew there was something wrong because he's like, no, well, no, we're not putting our daughter up for adoption for one, but also there's something seriously wrong with my wife. Yeah, we obviously got some help for myself. Good. I'm... I'm so glad because I think you have to, that's the only way of getting through it. Right. Yeah. Like we have to have, it just comes back to support and, and being heard and being able to like voice these concerns and these beliefs and these feelings and be told that like, yeah, this shit is hard and no, you aren't doing anything wrong. You're doing everything perfect. And even having those thoughts means that you're the most amazing mother. Yeah. Like if you didn't, if we weren't so concerned about being a good mom and being able to do what, a mom is supposed to do that is actually what would make us not a good mom yeah and when you're in your right mind you're able to see like you are a good mom because you're feeling so guilty about it but at the time you're like I'm a horrible human for even thinking this but you're not in your right mind postpartum depression you are you are literally not in your right mind you are not you and it can make you think the most horrible and terrifying thoughts. And I don't know why I I had had it and I had it with all three. And it has been it has been terrifying every single time, even though I expected it the second and third time, but it's terrifying every time you go through it. Did you how long like when was the onset and then how long until you were able to get help and what did that help look like? So the onset was my first, I would say maybe two months six weeks maybe and this isn't a good answer and I know it's not a good answer the help I got was not like I went to a counselor and this that and the other I had someone that would come to my house um, and it was a military resource I actually don't even know what her credentials were or anything I think she was a military family life counselor which that means nothing to anybody that's not military affiliated she was a, some type of counselor and she started coming to our house and just talking to us. And she was more so kind of just someone to check in and it was help. But I don't feel like I really started to get better until I stopped trying to breastfeed. At about five months postpartum, I stopped trying to breastfeed. I stopped trying to pump and I went full formula and that kind of lifted the darkness from my life. And I truly did feel like I started seeing color and things were bright and I felt like I couldn't start to enjoy life and start to enjoy my daughter. And then it slowly started to get better. And then at about one year postpartum is when I truly started to, started to feel like myself again. And at 18 months postpartum, I felt like me again and I felt happy and I felt joy. And those timelines were shortened each time after that. So how did you know after your first and going through all of this, how did you know you wanted more children? Yeah, that it was a tough decision because of how severe it was. And it was a tough, it was definitely a conversation with my husband too, because he went through it too. Um, 
not just in having a child, but seeing your spouse go through something so severe and knowing that might slash will most likely happen again. We knew that we did not want Audrey to be an only child. And that was the first thing. The second thing was the fact that I survived it. I got through it and and I knew that I was a good mom. I knew that I got through the darkness and I got through the depression and I was able to know that those were lies. That the depression was telling me that I was a horrible mom. That I'm not a horrible mom. I'm actually a really good mom. That I can be that good of a mom to one kid. I want to do it again and I want to do it to two kids. Maybe three. Maybe more at the time. So that's how I knew I wanted more. The fact that we survived having a difficult firstborn child as well with colic, food allergies, and all of that. If we survived that and our marriage survived that, that's how we knew we wanted another one. And then after our second child, seeing both of them together as siblings was so fun. And our second child was a lot easier. I don't know necessarily that he was actually that much easier or we just were more confident in ourselves. And we had experience like, oh, we have changed a diaper before. And that's how we knew we wanted a third, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So how did, how did your other two births go? Yes. So my second one, um, like I said, I had gestational diabetes again, totally healthy, uncomplicated pregnancy with all three. Every doctor's appointment, um, they said, oh, he's measuring really big. We're probably going to have to induce you. And thinking back to the first one, I'm like, that one was totally smooth. Like, oh, that's fine with me. Like, we can, you can induce me. And I was pregnant in the summer in Sacramento. I was due in September. It was hot. Like, I was so done being pregnant. And this will make more sense after you hear about my third birth. I feel so stupid saying this now that I was just so done being pregnant. So every appointment, I'm like, can you induce me? Can you induce me? And he's like, no, I can't induce you. You're not ready yet. You're not ready yet. Your baby needs to cook longer. I'm like, oh no, he's, he's fine. We're good. I'm 38 weeks. I told my doctor that my blood sugars had been uncontrolled, but honestly, I hadn't been checking my blood sugars because I'm stubborn and kind of stupid. So he's like, okay, we'll send you to the hospital. We'll check your blood sugars. And then I'm like, oh no, I don't know what my blood sugars have been. They've been fine. So I went to the donut shop and got myself an apple fritter. Cause I'm like, that's gonna spike my blood sugar for sure. And I want this baby out and I want him to induce me. So I got an apple fritter on my way to labor and delivery and I ate it and I got there and they're like, your blood sugar is fine. It's only like 110. And they're like, but your blood pressure is kind of high. So we're gonna keep you from monitoring. I'm like, well, my blood pressure stayed high. My blood sugar went back down, totally normal. And the doctor's like, well, your blood pressure went down, but you're here. If you want to be induced, we'll induce you. So I'm like, yes, cool. So they started to induce me, same exact way, the Pitocin, all that. Totally uneventful. I thought it was going to go exactly how it went with my first. We did 24 hours of Pitocin, contractions on and off, got the epidural. The epidural this time hurt so badly. It didn't hurt that bad the first time. It was kind of painful. They couldn't get it at first. So they kept putting the needle in, taking it back out, putting it in, taking it back out. And it was so painful. And they finally got it in and I was so exhausted. It was like 36 hours of labor at this point. And I was still only 
like four centimeters dilated and just exhausted. 36 hours, I think, 30, I don't know. We're coming up on 48 hours. And the doctor comes in and he said, you're not progressing. We have two options. We can unhook you from everything, send you home for the weekend and see if you go into labor on your own. And then you can come back on Monday and we can induce you again, just start the induction again. And in my head, I was like, there's no way I'll survive getting another epidural because it was so incredibly painful. And I just, I said, I've just been in labor for 48 hours. I'm exhausted. I can't imagine going home and coming back in two days to do it again. And they said, or your other option is we can go do a C-section. And that terrified me because I had never read anything about C-sections. Because in my mind, I was like, I was so uneducated and underprepared for the first birth. I'm going to read everything I can so I'm prepared for the second. I did all that for a vaginal birth. I read nothing about C-sections because of how fast and easy the first birth was. In my mind, a C-section was not an option. It was never going to happen. So I'm like, what am I supposed to do here? I didn't feel like I had an option. He gave me an option, but I don't really feel like they were, they weren't good options to me. I decided to have the C-section and it turns out I would have had to have a C-section anyways because when they did the C-section, my son's head was stuck in my pelvis. The doctor had to like pull really, really hard. Um, and he told me, he said, if you had gone home and come back, you would have had a C-section anyways, which made me feel better about my decision because I was a little disappointed. Um, that I, that I decided to have a C-section. But the C-section was scary. Uh, and I wish that I had read about C-sections or knew anything about them. Because in my head, it was just, oh, they give you the epidural or the spinal and you don't feel anything. That's not true. You feel everything. It just doesn't hurt. Um, I felt the doctor's hands inside of me. I felt him moving my son. Um, you feel everything. And that is a disgusting feeling. Um, and I wasn't ready for that. And it sent me into a panic during the operation. And that's a really uneasy feeling. Also laying on an operating table, being fully awake. And I've had plenty of surgeries. So surgery itself doesn't scare me, but being awake and knowing it's happening is just a really uneasy feeling. So, but the the birth itself, I, having had two C-sections now, I can compare the two. It, I, I did not like this one. It was a very sterile birth. The drapes, the masks, which it's an operation. It should be sterile, but it did not feel like a birth. So like they test your skin with like this, they test it with ice first because they have to test different sensations or nerves or something to make sure you are fully numb. So they test you with ice first to make sure you don't feel that. And then with like, it's like an electrocution thing. It's not really an electrocution thing, but um, they shock you to make sure you can't feel that. And once they do that, they start the operation. And getting the baby out is pretty fast. And so I felt all of that. They cut him out, they held him up. I. I saw him, um, I heard his first cry, which that was still magical, amazing, blissful, just like the vaginal birth. And then they took him over to the warming table and my husband went over, cut the umbilical cord and then they took him away. And I didn't know where they took him. They did take him to the NICU, I didn't know why. 
And I don't, they don't really show a lot of C-sections in TV shows or movies. The birth is fast, but then there's 45 minutes of sewing you back together. So I had a lot of anxiety with that. And apparently pretty common with C-sections too is shaking afterwards because of medication they give you. And so my body was just shaking uncontrollably and I couldn't stop. And I kept asking the anesthesiologist, like, is this normal? Where's my baby? What's happening? Like asking all these questions. And it, I felt like I was a burden to people and they didn't want to answer my questions. And they were just trying to finish their stuff and finish their paperwork and this, that, and the other. So they sewed me up and you have to go to the recovery room for an hour to make sure you're okay. And I'm by myself. My husband is with my son in the NICU. I don't really know that there's anything wrong with him. Um, and I'm by myself. My dad did end up coming to the recovery room with me and my husband had texted a picture to my dad and that was the first time that I saw my son other than the first time I saw him and he had tubes and wires and stuff all over him and I didn't I had no idea anything was even wrong with him so that wasn't like a super positive birth experience if you will he ended up being okay he has some fluid in his lungs and um, a hard time breathing. So he was in the NICU for five days, but it wasn't like a really happy birth experience, if you will. Yeah. That sounds like a really scary birth experience. Actually. I can't imagine like all those things you're describing, like being on an, just being in an operating room in general for me would be very triggering to anxiety. And then just not knowing what's going on, feeling everything. Like you don't get to see him. You don't know, no, like no one's communicating with you. You just, I would imagine, feel very helpless and alone and, yeah, scared. Yeah. And then the first time that I got to hold him wasn't until about 36 hours postpartum. Looking back, that makes me really mad because, like, how do you keep a mother away from their baby? And it wasn't for his safety reasons. My postpartum nurses would not let me leave my room. Um, they said, if you can't walk, you can't go see him. You can't take a wheelchair. And I'm like, a lot of expletives come to my mind right now. Uh, the, yeah, that seems, I, I mean, again, I don't really know much about C-sections, but that seems odd. And which makes me really mad, but also this goes back to nothing will stand in my way. So it was excruciating, but I got out of that bed. And I walked my ass to that NICU. Um, oh my God, Megan. And it hurts so bad. Oh my goodness. Like, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm sure they have their reasons. They're, you just had major surgery. So I get it. They're like, no, you need to stay in bed. And you're like, fuck you. I'm his mom. Well, and that's the thing is, um, I was allowed to go see him as often as I wanted to. And so I said, okay, I'm getting up and I'm going to see him. And the pain, I cannot even describe the pain. I mean, I could explain. I can describe the pain. My muscles were cut in half. Um, that's how it felt, because that's what happened. Um, and like moving your legs hurt, and then my arms were so sore from trying to push my body up out of the bed. Um, but my motivation was my son's not in my room with me, and the only way I can see him is to get up out of this bed. So I did that every three hours to go see him and hold him. That's not how all hospitals work though. It, it was this specific hospital. And I know that now because yeah. I gave birth at a different hospital with my third son and it was not, they were not supportive at this hospital and it was a totally different experience. 
So let's talk about let's talk about your third son. Yes. That birth, how it was different since we just heard about the the first C section. Yeah. So we can compare, and then we'll we'll move into mm-hmm. like postpartum with both of them. Yeah. So with my third son, a lot of differences. My first two children were born in California. My third child was born in Colorado. My first two children, I just had typical OBGYNs. With my third son, I was in an OBGYN midwife clinic. And that, I didn't even know that was a thing with my first. It was such a difference. The support, the care. He was delivered by an OBGYN because it was a C-section. Had it not been a C-section, well, it would have had, the OBGYN would have had to be there because I was planning a VBAC anyways. But the prenatal care was totally different with the midwife clinic. They just cared. I was not a number. They knew my name. They knew my other two children's name. They knew my husband's name. They knew our hobbies. They just cared about us so much. And I never felt that at the with the other two. So with my third son, again, healthy pregnancy, healthiest pregnancy out of the three of them, um, I gained very minimal weight, which that is not the case with the first two. I worked out the entire pregnancy. I did CrossFit the whole time. I did CrossFit up until a week before he was born. I had a really bad headache, which is not uncommon for me. I've had migraines my whole life, but this headache would not go away. And one of my neighbors was a physician's assistant. And so he had a blood pressure cuff and I was like, can you just take my blood pressure real quick? And it was kind of elevated. I just didn't feel well. And he's like, you should probably go get checked out. And where we live in Wyoming, there is a hospital here, but not a good hospital. Um, And it's kind of notorious for you don't want to go there. Um, And my clinic that I go to is 45 minutes away where the good hospitals are and all that. We're about two hours away from Denver, where we're at. Um, And I... As the day went on, I just felt not well. A headache that was nagging, but nothing alarming. Nothing that would be like, I need to go to a hospital now. Just like, I'm 34 weeks pregnant. I'm starting to slow down. Maybe I'll take a nap, whatever. I had my husband pick up a blood pressure cuff from Walmart on his lunch break. And I started taking my blood pressures and they were high. But then I'm like, yeah, it's a blood pressure cuff from Walmart. It's probably not accurate. I'm I'm dismissing things, maybe partially because I'm like, I don't want anything to be wrong, but also like, I'm, I don't want to be overreacting. Um, but then I just started to really not feel well and feeling so unwell that I didn't think that I could make the 45 minute drive to my doctor's office. Um, mostly the headache and just, ugh, I feel so tired. So I went to the hospital here in town. It was like, eight o'clock at night. And I just said, I'm 34 weeks pregnant. I have a headache. My blood pressure has been high all day. I just need to be monitored. So they monitored me. My blood pressures were very, very high and they stayed high the whole time. They took my, like they did urine samples, all that. And not just, they were preeclamptic. They were in that range and they monitored me and they said, oh, you're, uh, you're fine. I think you just are dehydrated we're gonna discharge you, we feel safe. We feel fine sending you home. Um, and I, I have gone back many times and looked at my blood pressures and they were not just high, they were dangerously, dangerously high. They should have 
admitted me then, but I'm really glad they didn't because I would have had to, had to deliver there. And then about once they had told me, because they did my blood work, they're like, oh, your blood work's fine. You're, what is the term? Not preeclamptic, but... Hypertension? Yes. They said, this is probably just... Hypertensive. You're probably just hypertensive. And I'm like, this is not hypertensive. Well, usually, okay, hypertensive in pregnancy is preeclamptic, right? Well, I guess the diagnosis also usually has, has to, have to be... protein in your urine. But once, yeah. I think once you've gone past a certain blood pressure, it was past that. But they had said, okay, we're going to discharge you. I said, okay, that's fine. I started having regular contractions on the monitor and they still discharged me anyways, but I was only 34 weeks pregnant. So you should probably admit someone at 34 weeks pregnant, having high blood pressures and then having consistent contractions. But they sent me home anyways. Like I said, I am glad now that they did discharge me because I would not have wanted to deliver there. So anyways, they discharged me and I went home and I slept. I got home, at, they discharged me at like two o'clock in the morning. I go home and I slept and I called my OB the next day just to let them know, like, hey, I went to the ER, they cleared me, I'm fine. And she says, okay, well, you need to come here so I can check you out. And I had been taking my blood pressures that morning as well and they stayed high and I still didn't feel well. My head still hurt. My blood pressures were rising. And um, I'm like, okay, it's not okay. I don't feel well. My blood pressures are high. I'll go in. And she said, well, if nothing else, let's just compare your blood pressure cuff to ours to make sure that it is real or not. And I get there and they take my blood pressure and they immediately get the doctor and they're like, this is not good. They are high. So they hook me up to a monitor to do a non-stress test. And they're like, well, at least you're not having contractions, but they take my blood pressure again after I'd been laying down for 20 minutes and my blood pressure had gone up even higher. And my doctor, um, I actually did not love my doctor for most of my prenatal care. I loved all the midwives, but the doctor didn't have great bedside manners. She was kind of just rough and I didn't love that. But she came in and like from that moment, she said, I know this wasn't your plan, um, I know you really want to be back and I will try to honor that, but you need to get to, you need to go to labor and delivery right now. I will meet you over there. Your blood pressures are dangerously high. You're at a very high risk of a stroke right now. Who drove you here? And I said, myself. And she goes, well, that's not ideal. You go to labor and delivery right now. You do not stop anywhere. You do not stop for food. You do not stop for a drink. You go right now. And the hospital was like three minutes away from the clinic. And at that moment, I didn't even, I didn't realize that things were as serious as they were. Even then, um, I'm like, okay. I had been monitored before for various things. Um, and I thought it was going to be just like that. I'm going to go to labor and delivery. They're going to monitor me. I'm going to be cleared. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to go home. So I get there, but they didn't put me into a triage room. They put me into a labor and deliver room, like a big room. And there were four nurses waiting in that room when I got there. I'm like, hmm, still didn't raise any red flags. I'm just like, okay, cool. I get there. They immediately have to do a urine test and they hook me up to an IV. My doctor had explained to me that they were going to hook me up to magnesium to bring my blood pressure down. But when they got my, took my blood pressure, it was in the lethal range. 
Um, so they couldn't even wait for the magnesium. They had to give me an immediate acting medicine. And the nurses are really good at making you not think anything is wrong. Cause I had no idea how serious things were. I was so calm. Didn't tell my husband what was going on. He was chaperoning a field trip for my daughter. I am just so calm, still convinced that I'm just being monitored and going home. I was supposed to be collecting my urine for 24 hours for the protein, whatever. And they're giving me all kinds of medicine, hooking me up, explaining all these things. Things are happening really fast. And I still am like an idiot, like no idea. <laughs> just a regular day, whatever. Oh, they ordered an ultrasound to make sure that my son was big enough to be born. And how did I not realize at that time, like, okay, maybe things are gonna happen. No, still no idea. And she explained to me that the neonatal nurse practitioner was gonna come in and explain to me what babies at that gestation, like what complications they can have and all of this. And like <laughs> saying this out loud, at that point, I still did not think my son was going to be born at that point uh, because the doctor had said like, we're gonna get your blood pressures under control and then we're gonna keep you on bed rest until you're 36 or until 37 weeks and then we'll induce your late or un and then we'll induce you. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's the plan. And then like with every half an hour, the timeline got moved up. They came in, they brought a steroid injection to give me to mature my son's lungs. And they had told me we're gonna give you one now and one in 24 hours and then one 24 hours after that to mature his lungs. So I'm like, okay, well, uh, that's at least three days. And I got one, which is better than none. But the timeline just kept moving up. Finally, I did call my husband and I'm like, yeah, you should probably come. I'm gonna be put on bed rest, whatever. But I was rapidly declining. The headache got worse and worse and worse. I never really realized like, oh, I'm gonna have my son today. And my husband did finally get there. But by the time he got there, I felt so horrible. And the only way I can describe it is I felt like I was dying. Um, and looking back, it's because I was. Um, my organs were starting to shut down. And the headache, I've had headaches, horrible, horrible headaches, but nothing can compare to this. So they gave me fentanyl for the headache and it did nothing. And my doctor had said like, okay, well, pre headaches are common with preeclampsia, but the fentanyl should have helped a little bit. We need to get an MRI to make sure that there's nothing else going on. And it's a good thing that she did because, and she's an amazing doctor, um, because there was something else going on. They did the MRI and I actually had intracranial hypertension, so I had swelling in my brain. We don't know why. It's a very, very rare complication. She had said she had only seen that once before in all of her years of practicing medicine. She retired the year or the week after she delivered my son. So she'd been practicing for a long time. She said the only other time she had seen that was when she was in residency and they have no idea why it happens. But by the time I had the MRI, I couldn't move my head. I couldn't move my body. Um, my organs were shutting down. The swelling in my brain was getting worse and once they found out that I had that intracranial hypertension, they're like, we need to do the C-section right now because the blood pressure was not going down. The pressure in my brain was going up and he was not ready to be born yet. But if they did not deliver him, I would have died. Um, 
And that's hard for me because he wasn't ready. Um, but my body couldn't hold him in anymore. Um, and my doctor, before they took me into the operating room, uh, she said, I'm really sorry. I know that you wanted to have a VBAC and I really wanted to honor that, but we can't wait anymore. And I said, I don't even care because I can't think about anything right now because I hurt so badly. Um, so the pain made me not really care about anything, but my husband and I didn't know anything was that serious up until the moment when my doctor said, we need to do the C-section right now. And that's when I got scared. And I looked at my husband and I, all I said to him was, please tell Audrey and Bradley that I love them because I really did think that I was gonna die. And I didn't know Colby yet. And I wasn't worried about him, which, is hard for, it's probably gonna be hard for a lot of people to understand. Like, how can you not be concerned about your unborn child? I have, or I had two children that I did know, and I was afraid that they were gonna lose their mother that day, and they wouldn't be okay. I know that Colby would have been okay because he wouldn't have known any different. So I really did think I was gonna die. So that was really hard to go into the operating room um, thinking that, but, Luckily I didn't, so here I am. So they took me into the operating room. My husband couldn't be in there when they gave me the spinal. Um, and my doctor was just so amazing. Usually it's the nurse or a tech that holds you where you have to be hunched over while you get the spinal, but my doctor is the one that helped me, um, which I did not expect that with how she was in all the in-office visits. Um, but that meant a lot to me. They gave me the spinal and this experience was so different than with my second. It was not, it did not feel sterile. It was so warm and comforting. Um, it was November 30th. I love Christmas. And I asked them if they would play Christmas music and they did. They put Christmas music on the anesthesia. They had a clear drape for me. I didn't ask for any of this. They had a clear drape um, and they started the, c-section and they forgot to get my husband and uh, they started the operation and i said can someone get my husband and they're like oh, oh we forgot dad and they brought him in and 10 seconds later they pulled my son out so had i not said anything he would have missed the birth but this anesthesiologist was amazing he kept trying to lift my head up so that i could see my son being pulled out of me all of these things to make it not scary not sterile to make it as positive of a birth experience as possible. And it was amazing. It was a terrifying experience. Oh, and the other thing that I forgot to mention, when they did the spinal to numb me, they drained fluid from my spinal cord, which immediately relieved the pressure in my brain, which immediately took the headache away. So wow, I felt amazing. I had no pain during his birth. Um, it was scary, but it wasn't, and they did, it was amazing. So he was born, he was, um, he was only 34 weeks gestation. They pulled him out, and very briefly held him up. He had a very, very faint cry. At the time, I did not realize how early 34 weeks is, which is why I said, like, I wanna slap first time and second time pregnant me for saying I'm so done being pregnant because you really do need to, they need 40 weeks, they do. 34 weeks is very early. Um, he was very little, he 
had a very, very faint cry, and they took him immediately. I told my husband, I said, you go with him immediately. Um, I'm fine. So he went with him. He was able to cut his umbilical cord. They had to give him some medicine called surfactant to open his lungs because they were not developed enough. And then they, he was intubated immediately and taken up to the NICU. So my husband did go with him, but he didn't stay with him for long. So he was able to come back down with me and be with me for that hour in the recovery room. And just this C-section birth was so completely different than the other one emotionally, but physically as well. I had almost no pain, which I thought that the pain I had with my second son was how C-section recoveries were, but it's not. And I found out that my doctor with the third one went in and she sewed back together every single layer that they cut through because they cut through seven, six or seven layers. I think it's seven. Yeah. Doctors, most doctors don't do that, which blows my mind. Why wouldn't you? You cut through all of them so back together. They don't? No. Oh, my God. I mean, maybe most do. The first doctor I had definitely did not, and I had almost no pain. The only pain I had was actually referred nerve pain. I had no muscle pain, nothing. I got, I was up and walking. It was a very, very traumatic birth, but an incredibly positive experience. Because I can't imagine if I had this birth experience with the surgeon that I had with my second, it would have been, no, it would have been horrible. But the hour after the recovery, I'm thinking back, my husband and I were also, um, we were very numb because of what we had gone through. It was so traumatic, but our brains, I do think that our brains shut it off so that we couldn't fully process it. We're 15 months out of it and we still haven't processed it all. Um, but we were, we were almost giddy. Like we were laughing, we were cracking jokes with the nurses. I don't know. I mean, we were not processing what was happening because my son was not in good shape, um, but he was also taken care of. So, well, I think you went from like such an extreme, like low, you know what I mean? To this high with how the birth actually ended up going like the laboring part in the beginning of it obviously was the worst. I, I can, I just can't even fathom what you were going through, but then it seemed like there was such this huge redemption that I could see how you guys were both giddy. You know, you're yeah. like, Oh my God, like he's here. Like it, that was such an improvement from where we came from. And yeah, I think we were, we were very much still naive about how dire his health was. Um, and part of that is how good the staff of that hospital was like, we've got it. We've got him. He will be taken care of. So part of that was we were not fully understanding how dire it was for him, but also like, you know, we have confidence that he'll be taken care of. Um, but another thing about this hospital that made it so special was, you know, the music that they play when a baby is born, the after the hour of being in recovery, the nurse said, do you want to push the button to play the music so you can hear the music of your baby being born? And I don't know why this makes me so emotional, but it does, and it makes me cry. And I have it on video. It's just us being dorky, have a selfie, but they let us push the button to play the music. I think it's just because nothing went the way it was supposed to. It was a terrifying experience. 
But that one thing made it all seem normal and special. Yeah, you needed that. We definitely needed that. So after we played that, they immediately took me up to his room and I got to meet him immediately. I had to stay in the hour of recovery, but they immediately took me up to his room and I got to meet him. Um, We obviously couldn't hold him. Um, He was intubated. He had IVs. He had had the works. Um, But I got to meet him and I got to... I got to touch him with my finger. And they said, you can stay as long as you need to. You can stay as long as you want. You can sleep here if you want. That was, that was important, saying, you take, you be here as long as you need to. And I asked questions, like, what's, what's happening? Like, what, what is going on with him? And they were great at explaining it. And oh, I stayed with him for a couple hours. And I said, okay, I'm ready to go back to, I'm ready to go to my room because I need to sleep. And then it was a couple hours later that the fluid started building up in my head again. And I got the headache. And so then I started going downhill again. I had to be on magnesium for 24 hours after his birth. But then I also had to be on medication to help the swelling in my brain to go away. And then they had told me like this medication, um, it's a diuretic, so it removes fluid from your body, including your brain. So you pretty much have no chance of breastfeeding. Like your milk will not come in. You have a preemie. Most people who have preemies can't breastfeed. Uh, Your milk's not gonna come in on this medication. Letting me know like, it's okay. It's not gonna happen. You can try if you want to though. Here's a pump. Here's how to hand express. And that stung a little bit. Like, I wanted to breastfeed, but immediately, like, well, I don't want to do any of that right now because the headache is now back. Um, and now you're telling me this medication is going to make it so my milk supply doesn't come in. I don't have a baby who's going to be able to latch to make my milk come in. All this. But I started hand expressing. I started using the pump. And my milk did come in. And... I just kept, I had nothing else to do. I would go to the NICU as often as I could. For the first 24 hours, I, uh, well, I guess I should say, for the first 24 hours, I was in the ICU because of the swelling in my brain and all of that. So I was in the ICU for 24 hours. I had to have a nurse with me at all times. I was still allowed to go to the NICU, but I had to have a nurse with me at all times. And they didn't like me staying in the NICU for very long. After the first 24 hours, I was moved down to critical care. After that, I was was in critical care for two days, I think. After that, I was moved down to just like regular postpartum. And I, when I wasn't with my son, I was just in my room and I had nothing else to do. So I just would hand express. And so little by little, my milk did actually come in um, and... I would, every drop that I would make, I would take to the NICU and they weren't able to give it to him for the first week or so. He wasn't allowed to have any of it. He was on um, TPN, Total Parental Nutrition, um, just because of his, he couldn't, he was too early. He couldn't have that. But because he wasn't able to have it and I was still making it, it started building up little by little and they started freezing it and I just kept doing it. And then I got discharged, obviously, before he did. And that was hard. That was really, really hard um, to have to leave him there and go home. It was hard, but I also had two kids at home that needed me, too. Um, So it was hard to leave the hospital. 
I cried the whole way home, but it was good to be home and to be with my other kids because they had no idea any of that that had happened. I almost died. He almost died. They were excited to meet their brother. How do I explain any of this to them? I can't really show them pictures of him because that's kind of scary. How do I explain to him, to, how do I explain to them that he's here, but he's not here? How do I explain this, this to them without breaking down and crying that I want him here? It's a lot of emotions to manage of explaining this to your kids while trying to keep it together for yourself. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, that was hard, but it was good to be home. And so once I was home, it was my job to heal and to pump. And I feel like that is the only way I was able to successfully pump and have a supply is because I didn't have a baby to take care of. That's the only way I was able to do that. Um, so he was in the NICU for three weeks. And so for that three weeks, my job was, I was taking care of the other two kids and going back to the NICU 45 minutes away. But I just, I pumped and I didn't have to take care of a baby. So for that three weeks, I wasn't ever latching him. Um, I did end up having quite a bit of an oversupply. It didn't last, but yeah, that was the first three weeks. Yeah, oh my God, that's really intense. So, oh my God though, so he gets to come home after three weeks. Yeah. Was this the first time your other two get to meet him? Yeah, so COVID restrictions were still a thing. I think they probably still are, but it was also cold and flu season. So no children were allowed in the hospital at all. And me and my husband were the only ones allowed in the NICU. Um, so they did not get to go to the hospital at all. We showed, yeah, we showed them pictures of him once he had a lot of his things removed from him. Um, Cause like the ventilator and some of the um, oxygen masks and stuff were a little too intense to show them, but they had seen pictures, but yeah, they met him the day that he came home. So I finally get to meet their baby brother. So how was, how was postpartum once you had all three at home and you've got Colby there and your family's now complete, yeah. I take it. Yeah, it was it was amazing having all of them there. And preemies, or at least he, him as a preemie, they sleep a lot. Um, so he wasn't crying a lot. He would wake up, eat, and go back to sleep. They're very, very sleepy. So it was really calm when he first got home. But really, once he reached his due date, he started crying a lot. <laughs> Um, and it was a lot like Audrey. And then he, every second he was awake, he was crying, but it was not like a typical baby cry, which I have been around a lot of babies now. So I know it was a scream and it was a scream like he was in pain and hurting. And then postpartum depression started to set in and sleep deprivation, but mostly just, I knew there was something wrong with him and really, really scary having a preemie, um, especially cold and flu season, because germs are a lot more scary to a, a baby that's born premature with health risks. And the first couple weeks were filled with even more doctor's appointments than a typical newborn because he was born early. He was on oxygen at home. He had overnight sleep studies, things like that. So there was a lot of other things mixed in with it that just became so much to juggle and it became very overwhelming. 
But then I'm just like, something is wrong. And it was, things just kept getting dismissed of like, he was born premature. It's going to take a, take a while for his system to catch up and his immune system is premature and this, that, and the other. And I, I didn't have a preemie, so I'm accepting these as the answers. Um, but then as time went on, that just, that answer wasn't working for me anymore because it kept, things were kept happening. His discomfort kept continuing on. As far as like postpartum healing, that was pretty easy, honestly. The most uneventful, easy recovery-wise. Um, but postpartum depression started to set in, uh, taking care of preemie with medical issues and all that. Things just, things were really hard. So you knew what it kind of was like since you had it with your first. So were you able to get help quicker? I should have been. I should have. Um, I think it took longer for the postpartum depression to truly set in with him or I ignored it. I'm not really sure. Um, I think a lot of his health issues took priority over my postpartum depression, if that makes sense. Like, which sounds kind of silly for me to say that, but like my mind knew his health was more important than my postpartum depression. Like your postpartum depression is not important at all. You shouldn't make that a priority. But I knew that he needed to be taken care of first. His health needed to be taken care of. I still have postpartum yes, depression. but you can't take care of him if... If you're not well, right? I, yeah. Like you have to be taken care of first. But I totally know what you, that's, that's the thoughts that we have. Those, that's how it feels. No, I'm going to be honest. I still have postpartum depression. It's not fully taken care of. Yeah. And that's the thing is postpartum is forever. I think a lot of people don't like understand yeah. this is that like you're, you said 15 months. Yeah. 15 or 16. It gets confusing for me because you have uh, his actual age and then his adjusted age. I don't know. I feel like after right. a year, I stopped counting. But um, yeah, I honestly, I haven't done a great job this time around with addressing it. I still, it's not, it is not as dire as it was the, with Audrey, for sure. And it is better than it was a couple months ago. It did get pretty bad. It, it did get to the point with Colby that it did with Audrey. My husband and I did reach out to and get help. Not like a counselor and things like that. I stayed, the one thing that I did differently with my second and my third birth is I stayed on my antidepressants for my pregnancy and postpartum and breastfeeding and all of that. The thing I did differently this third time around is at all of the doctor's appointments for my son, they give you the postpartum depressant screenings. I answered them honestly every time, which I never did before. Girl, what the heck? What? You didn't answer them honestly before? No, because I knew that it would, yeah. I don't, I never answered them honestly. And then I said, you know what? This time I'm answering them honestly. Yeah. And so we live on base, on the military base. We get seen at the clinic on base. And so first couple appointments, I don't need to be talked about right now. We're here for my son. But like the fourth or fifth appointment, I'm like, I'm not doing okay. I need to answer this honestly. Because like, I know, like, I know I need help. I will get to it. Like, that's kind of how I felt about it. Um, so finally I was like, I need help. And I'm answering this question honestly. So I answered it. And my son's pediatrician, who is like the most amazing doctor ever, he didn't say anything to me. Like, ma'am, what is this? He said, I saw your answers and I'm going to 
I'm going to help you. And he walked the form across the hallway to my doctor and gave it to her. And because, and he said, just so you know, because, and it's because it's a military thing. He said, I have to let your husband's supervisor know, um, which a lot of you are going to be like, why, why does that matter? It's, it makes it so he can't be sent anywhere. He can't be taken or sent on any special duty or something when I have a mental health crisis because the military can do that. Oh, that's so good. They can send him anywhere at any time. So he said, I have, I have to let your husband's supervisor know. And I'm like, I know, I know. <laughs> like, yes, that's fine. Um, and it was handled really well. And I'm glad that it was. So that was great and it was helpful. And then as I said, my neighbors that live around me, they were very, very helpful as well. Um, one neighbor in particular, uh, I'm only laughing because I would go to her house every single day for two, three weeks and sit on her couch and cry for hours. And I'm only laughing because her husband would come home for lunch every single day and see me sitting on the couch. And he would just give her wife a nod, get his lunch and leave. And it was just for three weeks straight. like. It wasn't a thing. Like, it was just, they just took care of me. That's how it should be. I wish that every woman, I wish that every mother had that. Well, and it was just, it was, obviously, she's one of my best friends. Obviously, she's going to take care of me. She held Colby while he cried and cried and cried. And she always made it very clear to me that his crying did not bother her. She said, he can cry all he wants. It's not going to bother me. And she would tell me, like, bring him to me. He can cry and you can go home and sleep or you can sit here and cry while he cries. It's not going to bother me. And obviously that meant the world to me because his crying bothered me deeply. And to have someone say his crying doesn't bother me. But then for her husband to also be like, like my husband sees me cry all the time, but to have someone else's husband see me cry and to just have a nod, like give you a nod and walk on and be like, it's fine for three weeks straight when they would probably sit down and have lunch together every day. So I interrupted their life for three weeks and they were just fine with it. So I was, I was the most taken care of postpartum the third time around. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you really needed it. I mean, you needed it yeah. in every circumstance, but this was, you know, this was exceptional. Definitely. So I'm so glad that you had that. Well, with that, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners, Megan? Yeah. So one of the Instagram pages, I think they might have a Facebook page too, that helped me a lot while I was navigating breastfeeding a child with allergies is called free to feed, like free as in cost no money or F-R-E-E to feed. They were really helpful on giving like scientific information on like what is actually true about breastfeeding because you always hear like oh you have to wait two weeks for dairy to leave your system and then if you have one slip up you're screwed for like two weeks and that was really frustrating while I was trying to navigate all that so that that page was really helpful and took a lot of stress out of it for me yeah that's amazing and I'll link that in the show notes for people definitely well Thank you so much. Um, is there anywhere that people can find you if you want people to find you, like your social media, email, whatever, if people have questions? Oh, yeah, definitely. And anybody, whether you know me or not, um, 
If you are ever, ever struggling with postpartum depression or anxiety or feeling lonely or any of it, um, I will never think it's weird for you to reach out to me. Um, if you're a stranger, if you're a friend, I don't care. Please, please always reach out to me. Um, my name is Megan Brubaker on Facebook, um, on Instagram. It's my name from when I was super young, so don't judge me, is Meg Meg Soccer. I will always talk to anyone. I will never think it's weird if you don't know me because I was alone. I was very alone and I would have loved if anybody had reached out to me. So please do if you feel alone or even if you don't and you're like, hey, you're weird, but you're kind of funny. I'll talk to you. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for being such an open door and a resource to people. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so, so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to subscribe and leave a review. I appreciate each and every one of your reviews as they help this podcast get more attention and that helps spread the truth about postpartum.